everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into paranormal occurrences that happen here across the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and I am a skeptic by nature, but I do want to be a believer. I'm intrigued by the paranormal and open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I will present to you the historical facts and the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us to Charleston, South Carolina. And this is the story of the old Charleston jail and also that of Lavinia Fisher, who was reportedly the first female serial killer. For those who are sensitive, I do want to let you know that there are reports of murder as well as slavery in this episode. I'm going to start this episode with just talking about the jail itself at first. Now, prior to the jail being built... This property was used for quite a long time, even housing various structures on it. And some of those structures and uses were, it was used as a workhouse for runaway slaves. There was also a makeshift hospital for the poor people who couldn't afford better care. There was criminals that were housed in the structures, although these criminals would not have been separated from non-criminals, such as the slaves. Um, debtors, everybody was kept in together in these structures. As well as the before mentioned things, there was also punishments that were quite common, such as whippings, people would be branded, torture was common, and executions were also performed publicly. They would hang people here, people would be burnt at the stake, and the worst probably way of execution was being drawn and quartered, which is pretty much your arms are tied, your hands are tied, and they are pulled until you come apart and die. So nothing about these structures was great for anyone. After these structures kind of went out, the jail was built, and it was built in 1802. And it served as not only housing, you know, your normal criminals, such as murderers, robbers, things like that, but it also held prisoners of war. There were slaves that would be waiting to be auctioned that would be held here. There was pirates. There would be people who couldn't pay their taxes, all sorts of things. Now, this isn't like a jail we would know today, where everybody gets their 8 by 10 cell or whatever it may be. Everybody has a toilet. Everybody has a bed. Nothing like that at all. The conditions at this jail were absolutely awful. It was meant to hold 130 inmates, but it usually held at least 300 or more. So more than double the amount of people that should have been there. They had so many prisoners that some of the prisoners were actually locked in cages that were barely even big enough for them to fit in. This led to things such as disease being common, um, sexual assault, violence, things like that. Adding to not only the prisoner conditions, but the jail itself 
actually led to a lot of issues um, in addition to the overcrowding, such as the windows of the jail did not have glass, lead, anything like that. There was only bars that would prevent the inmates from escaping. So the issue with just the bars is, if you've ever been to South Carolina, you know that bugs are common in the summer. It's really hot. It's really humid. Um, so insects coming in would be common. You know, rodents such as mice and rats coming in. And then in the winter, it was cold. I mean, you could have, if it ever snowed, you could have snow coming in, rain coming in. It wasn't a great place to have to be held. In addition to that, there was no running water, so conditions were pretty filthy. And what the prison would do is they would put sawdust all over the floor. And this is where people had to sleep, but it was also the only place they had to toilet. So everyone was defecating and so forth near where they would be sleeping. So pretty terrible. I'm sure it didn't smell great either and also led to further disease and so forth. Her records, apparently death was so common in the jail that the debtor's section of the prison actually was responsible for building mostly coffins while they were in jail. The jail was used until 1939 and then it was shut down, not because of the conditions, but because a new larger prison was built. So this jail was used for over 130 years and then you had quite a long history of it being used before that for other terrible purposes. Now I'm going to move on from the jail itself and I'm going to talk about the Six Mile Inn and Lavinia Fisher herself. Now Lavinia was married to her husband John Fisher and together along with one other gentleman they ran what was called the Six Mile Wayfarer Inn. And they ran this in the early 1800s. The inn was located six miles outside of Charleston, South Carolina, which is how it got its name. The mile houses were actually boarding houses that were set up in mile intervals for travelers. And these travelers were either heading from or to Charleston, South Carolina for the purpose of things like trading hides and tobacco and selling various goods, and they just needed a place to stay. So you would have a five-mile house, a six-mile house, seven-mile house, so forth. Now, the legend goes that travelers would stop at the inn, and Lavinia would scope them out to see what items they might have or occupations that they had to see if they could have money. If their valuables or their occupations seemed valuable, she would invite the men in, and invite them to tea. She was noted to be very beautiful and charming, so I doubt she would have any issue with getting the men to come in and stay for tea with her. And what would happen then is she would actually spike their tea with oleander, which would make them pass out, or she would just poison them in general. After she did her part of the bargain, her husband would actually then step in and he had various methods of ridding the men to get their items of value. He would either use an axe and cut them to pieces. He would beat them to death. 
Or, as they kind of got better at the murder game, he actually developed a contraption where if you pulled the lever, it would collapse one of the beds in the bedroom and dump the person into a pit, which was filled with spikes, which would, of course, kill the person. Whatever method they chose to dispose of the body with, the couple would then bury the body under the inn itself. The sheriff's office was reportedly getting quite a few reports of disappearances and so forth, and people were pointing them in the directions of the Six Mile Inn and the Fishers. Though, due to lack of evidence and respect for the couple in the area, nothing really ever came of the reports themselves. Lavinia and John were also actually active members of a highway robbery gang, and their gang operated the mile between the five and six mile house on Meeting Street Road. Now, they ran this for quite a while, but in February of 1819, things kind of came to a head for Lavinia and John. A vigilante gang stepped in because they were sick of all of the crime and robberies happening at these two mile markers. So they stepped in, um, they were just concerned citizens, and they just kind of took over the inn, kicking out the fishers. When they felt that they had succeeded in getting everything under control, they left a man named David Ross to keep watch of the area and keep everything under control. But the day after they left, David was actually attacked by two men. He saw Lavinia walking by and he started yelling out to her for help. Lavinia came over, but she actually never had any intention of helping him. She started to choke him and actually ended up smashing his head through a window. Now, I don't know how, but he did end up escaping the situation and made his way towards the sheriff's office to report the crime. In the meantime, another man came to the inn, and his name was John Peoples. He had stopped to see if there was a room at the inn for the night. So Lavinia, being the kind woman she is, invited him in for tea. Now he came in and sat down, but when her back was turned, he ended up dumping out the tea when she wasn't looking because he just didn't like the taste of tea, luckily for him. She apparently spoke with him for some time, and then she found him a room where he could go up to stay for the night. He did end up going up to the room, but he just was a little suspicious of all the questions she had asked and so forth, so he decided to kind of keep an eye on things, so he slept in the chair by the door instead of sleeping in the bed. In the middle of the night after he had fallen asleep, he awoke to the sound of the bed collapsing. He kind of went to investigate, saw the pit underneath and so forth, figured out kind of what their plan was, so he was like, I am out of here. He jumped out the window and fled towards the sheriff's office in the wake of Mr. David Ross. Both of the men eventually made it to the sheriff's office, and with the two reports from these men, the officers finally had the names of the people, they were able to locate the couple, and arrested them. In addition to arresting the couple, they actually ended up arresting the co-owner of the inn, as well as a couple other of the gang members as well. 
After the arrest, the inn was searched and the grounds were dug up. And what they found was pretty astonishing. There were tons of hidden passageways under the inn. And the officers found items that could be traced back to travelers. They found the herb that could put someone to sleep for hours. And they even found the mechanism under the bed. It was reported that they also found as many as 100 human remains under the inn. So they had apparently been doing this for quite some time. And as I said earlier, Lavinia is reportedly the first female serial killer. And her and her husband are actually kind of known as the predecessors to Bonnie and Clyde. Um, remember, they are reported to have killed over 100 people. They were robbers and so forth. So they predated Bonnie and Clyde by a little bit. Now, even with all the evidence against them that the police had found, the couple pled not guilty, but both were held at the old jail to await their trial that would be coming up in that May. The co-owner was kept along with them at the jail, but all of the other gang members were released. At the trial for the Fishers, they were charged and found guilty of attempted murder of David Ross, but the judge granted them an appeal till January, so they would be staying in this jail for almost a year. Now, during their imprisonment at the old jail, they were kept in a six-foot by eight-foot cell together with another gentleman, and it wasn't really heavily guarded, so they spent a lot of their time planning how to escape. On September 13th, they put their plan in action. John and a fellow prisoner made a hole below the window and used a rope that they had been made out of on various linens they had been collecting for quite some time. After they got the rope fashioned, the first man crawled through the window, went down the rope, and escaped. John came next, but while he was halfway down the rope, the rope broke, and John fell to the ground outside of the prison. Unfortunately, this left Lavinia trapped in the jail cell, unable to escape. Luckily for her, her husband John loved her enough that he didn't leave her behind, and him and the gentleman began to devise a plan of how to get Lavinia out. But in the meantime, the guards found out that the two gentlemen had escaped, and they went around looking for them and ended up finding them hiding under a boat, recaptured them, and put them under tighter surveillance at the jail. That was the last escape attempt for the Fishers. February 4th of 1820, almost a year later, the court heard the couple's appeal but ended up denying it, and they were sentenced to be hung at the gallows in front of the courthouse. They were supposed to be hung that day, but the judge ended up pushing the hanging back to February 18th. And it was said that the townspeople felt that they should have time to make peace with God, but that doesn't really sound feasible. I mean, remember they had been in jail for a year. You'd think that would have been plenty of time for them to make peace with God at that time. So the one theory I thought would probably be the most plausible and I did read this in one of the newspaper articles as well, is it was reported as it was moot because the government didn't want it to interfere with the horse race that was taking place on February 4th. 
Because remember, executions were very public at that time, and this was a very famous case. There's so much news coverage of it. This would have taken quite a lot of people away from the horse race to witness this. So this was a big money-making thing. I could see the government wanted to push that out. It was also reported at the time that a wife could not be executed if her husband was still living. And the court got around this by deciding to execute John first. Now, John himself, he accepted counsel from a minister, but Lavinia reportedly refused the minister's counsel. So at his execution, the minister read a letter on John's behalf stating he had become a Christian and he didn't want to die with a lie on his record. He continued to claim his innocence, stating that he had not committed any murders or any robberies. He did ask for mercy through his letter and in person to the audience, which was about 2,000 people. At the end, he was hung and did die at the gallows. Lavinia, she did not ask for counsel, and she actually thought up until the end that she was going to be pardoned. In hopes of a pardon and people taking her side, she even wore her wedding dress to the gallows. When she realized a pardon would not come, she yelled out her last words, quote, If any of you have a message for the devil, tell me now, for I shall be seeing him shortly, end quote. She then tied the noose around her own neck and jumped off the gallows, killing herself. Now that is some of the facts and the legends of what happened. I am going to give a little fact checking because some of the legend is a little bit off. So as far as the remains, the tunnels under the house, all of that, records show that there was actually only two bodies that were ever located on the grounds of the Six Mile Inn property. And these were discovered a few days after the couple was arrested when police went to investigate the home. They found a man's body that had been found in a fresh grave in the woods near the house. It seemed he had been shot around the time the house was raided by the sheriff. So this would have been when the couple was already in jail. Next to his grave was that of a woman who had been buried about two years prior to the man. Their identities are both unknown, and there is actually no evidence that was ever found implicating the couple. And something else to think about is if there had been that many bodies being reported, about a hundred remains or more, the stench would have been pretty noticeable. I mean, this is a well-traveled road. People are stopping here at the inn. People are stopping to water their horses and so forth. You really wouldn't be able to hide them on property. They would have had to probably hide them off-site. Now, going over to the incident where there was the report of the vigilante concerned citizen group kicking out the couple and so forth to stop the crime, well, if you read the newspaper reports as of 1819, this was reported a little differently. The Fishers Inn was actually attacked by the mob itself. The fishers and the gang and so forth were forced to flee, and the mob was said to have left a man behind. Again, the name remains the same of David Ross, whether it's the Concerned Citizen group or this one, it's David Ross. 
Now, he was said to watch the inn, but later on, the Six Mile House Gang returned to take their property back. And when they did, there was a brawl, but no one was killed and Ross escaped. So pretty much the story isn't that different, except who was involved with the mob. Now, Mr. Ross, he ended up giving testimony that helped to indict the couple. And his testimony was written down, and not only his, but also the man who escaped drinking the tea, the bed pit, and all that, Mr. John Peoples. Now, if you go back to the newspapers from that time as well, he gives a story stating that he was robbed and he was beaten by the Fishers. He says they did attack him while he stopped to water his horse, but he reports that he did not attempt to sleep at the inn, he did not drink tea with Lavinia, he did not see the bed contraption, and so forth. The only thing that happened is he was attacked, and the Fishers stole quite a bit of money from him as well. His testimony also helped to indict the Fishers. Now, the issue with Mr. Ross's and Mr. Peoples' testimony is both testimonies were written in various handwriting styles, so it looks like they were written by more than one person. Now, in addition to this, Mr. Peoples' last name is spelled two different ways in the same testimony. One spelling is P-E-E-P-L-E-S, and one is P-E-O-P-L-E-S. You would assume someone would know how to write their own name. One theory I could think to get around this is possibly, at this time, illiteracy and inability to write were pretty common. So maybe both men were unable to push, put their testimony down on their own. Although I don't know why more than one person would be writing for them unless testimonies were taken on various days and whatnot. But at the same time, it really doesn't explain it all. I'm not sure why other than maybe somebody added on to the testimony to really indict the Fishers for something else. So at this point, the Fishers, 10 of the gang members are arrested and so forth, sitting in jail before they're released. Everyone, remember, was released except the Fishers and the inn's co-owner, whose name was William Hayward. So the Fishers and the co-owner are all sentenced to be hanged. Nobody else is. Now, the Fishers were arrested and tried for assault with intent to murder David Ross. They were found guilty, but then they had to wait sentencing. Though an odd occurrence is between trial where they were convicted and between, you know, sentencing, their charges magically changed from that attempted murder of David Ross to just being sentenced for highway robbery. So the highway robbery charge was what really sentenced them to death. And Hayward himself was tried separately and hung later on. So with all these weird things happening, there's the main theory is that the Fishers were actually innocent, as well as Mr. Hayward, and they were done away with so that someone could take the property to use as they would not sell it. Which it has some clout behind it, as the only people convicted in any of this and gotten rid of were the three people who owned the inn. 
the gang members who were arrested didn't have any stake in the property. They were just involved with, you know, getting the goods and splitting profits. The main theory of who would have wanted the property was the Navy. Um, they were looking for a new place to build a naval base. And the governor and President James Monroe were actually said to be looking for the spot themselves. The only issue with this main theory is there is a naval hospital that was built there, but it didn't come around till about 80 years later. So I'm not really sure that that really hits the mark. I mean, possibly we know how slow government moves, but just a theory about it. As far as Lavinia dying in her wedding dress, um, after the Fishers were arrested, the locals were pretty irate when they learned what was going on um, as far as them attacking Mr. Peoples, um, attacking Mr. Ross, and so forth. So they actually did form a mob and burnt down the Six Mile Inn along with all of the Fishers' belongings. It is highly unlikely that they would have spared her wedding dress and given it to her at the prison. Because remember... She was in jail at this time. And then she was able to keep it with her in jail for a year before her execution. So the wedding dress theory doesn't really hold water there. Um, prisoners did usually at this time wear white smock type garments, which is probably what everyone, including the couple, was wearing. This might have been a case of, you know, handed down over the years is it started as she was wearing a white smock to she was wearing a white dress to it was a wedding dress, so on and so forth. But no newspaper reports say it's a wedding dress and so forth. So I'm assuming this is just something that was a tall tale legend that formed over the years. There's also the tale that she jumped out on her own, yelling her final dying famous words, which you see everywhere when you look up the information. Now remember, this was a highly sensationalized case at the time. There were tons of newspaper articles and reports, and I got to scour each and every last loving article. Now, she did apparently cause quite a commotion, yelling out, crying, screaming she was innocent, begging the crowd for mercy, so on and so forth. But she did finally realize at the end that she was not going to be pardoned. So she actually just quieted down, hung her head, and accepted her fate. But she did not tie her own noose. She did not jump. And her husband John was not hung before her. They were both hung at the exact same time when they flipped the lever to drop the gallows. One of the main reports, too, is that Lavinia and John were hung outside of the jail. They were actually hung outside of the courthouse. Per newspaper articles of that day, they state that the hanging took place on Meeting Street Road, present Lime Street. This is a 30-minute walk, six-minute drive from the jail, and they were actually taken by carriage from the jail to here. So, again, not hung outside of the jail. We are going to go a little bit fast forward before we go over the hauntings. I promise it's coming up pretty soon. Um, currently... So the inn was located on the site of the old Charleston Naval Hospital. But you cannot see the inn because, remember, it was burnt down by the mob. 
After the old jail closed in 1939, it was left abandoned and remained that way until 2000. In 2000, the American College of Building Arts actually bought the old jail. And they kept it off limits for quite a while, but they did open it to a select group of ghost tours. And the old jail is now on the Save America's Treasures Project. And that is with the National Trust for Historic Preservation. So efforts are being made to restore and maintain the old jail. Because it, I mean, it's been a, you know, dying for quite a bit of time. Things deteriorate and so forth. And actually just as of late 2021, and it's going on now, the jail is going under extensive renovations. They're working at stabilizing the building to keep it from crumbling and so forth. You can take some haunted tours of the area, but they closed it to the overnight investigations they used to host just because of the extent of the renovations going on. And now, last but not least, we are definitely getting into the hauntings, which is why we know we are all here. Now, of course, the main reported haunt is that of Lavinia Fisher herself. Her apparition is seen here quite frequently, and the first reports of this are said to have been shortly after her death. People stated that they would see her face in the cell window where she was kept. Um, they would often claim to also see a woman in her, in her white wedding dress, with many describing it as bright red and white. I can't figure out why it would be bright red, Unless people didn't know how Lavinia died, maybe they thought that she was murdered somehow. But remember, she was hung. There really wouldn't be blood, per se, at that. Sometimes people get a bloody nose or things like that. But there wouldn't be any reason for her to have a lot of blood on her dress. Um, a earthquake actually damaged the prison in 1886. And after that, her ghost was supposedly then seen wandering in the nearby Unitarian Cemetery as well as in the city itself. Lavinia did remain at the prison for a year, but remember, she didn't die here. She didn't die in her wedding dress, but a lot of people still to this day report seeing her in her wedding dress, but maybe again they're seeing in her in her white smock, so... That's Lavinia. Now, what gets me about this is I know that you don't have to haunt where you died. And, you know, you just mostly haunt where's most special to you and so forth in your life. I don't know why Lavinia would want to come back and haunt the jail. You would think maybe she would want to haunt the property where the old jail, where her inn was, something like that, maybe a childhood home, but why she would want to spend her afterlife in this horrible place, I don't know. Though the strangest thing to me is Lavinia, she was reportedly, as we know now, she is not, but she was reportedly the first female serial killer. So she's very prominent. People know her name. They don't know John's name. But no one reports John Fisher being one of the people that haunt the old jail. You would think if Lavinia and him went through the same exact thing, where are the reports of him? So, that's my only thoughts on that. 
The Unitarian Church Cemetery actually claimed that she haunts and is buried there. So I went through the church burial records, and she's actually not in any of their records, saying she's buried there. And next to the jail was a place called Potter's Field. And this field is where they would bury those who died in the prison or through execution and were not claimed by their family. So with this information, as well as the newspaper accounts, she and her husband would have actually both been buried in Potter's Field, um, probably as well as the co-owner, Mr. Hayward. Unfortunately, you cannot visit the graves of the Fishers or anyone who was buried in Potter's Field as it no longer exists. The bodies were not dug up, but they were actually built over. Um, the graves were built over to make room for the Porter Military School and later the Medical University of South Carolina. Neither of these buildings have any reports of her haunting now, after restoration began on the old jail, there's been various reports kind of stirring things up. Um, one of the main reports that the workers would have is they would be, you know, generating quite a bit of dust and everything. They would lock up for the night. Sometimes they would not return for a month or so. And when they came back, there would be all sorts of footprints in the dust, even though no one had been able to enter the building. Several workers have also reported seeing the ghost of a jailer. When they see him, he's holding a rifle, and he's usually on the third floor. When they see him, he will pass through the jail bars, head towards the people, and then just mysteriously vanish before he arrives at them. There's also a black man that is seen wearing ragged clothing, wandering aimlessly in the halls. And he's thought to be the spirit of a former slave. I am a little curious as to why he would be wearing the ragged clothes. As remember, if he was in the jail, he would be wearing his white smock, as they all would be. So I don't know why they don't see the black man in the smock, though maybe he chose to wear the clothing he wore in life. I don't know. There are also various strange sounds that are heard throughout the jail. That includes the hum of a dumbwaiter that will be heard moving between floors though the dumbwaiter actually hasn't been operational for quite some time. Alarms will also go on and off randomly. Um, cell phones will drain. Cameras will malfunction. Some people will complain of a feeling on the main staircase of feeling short of breath, and some will even report feeling like they're being choked. Other reports are people being grabbed, pushed, touched, and even scratched. One tour guide told a story of they felt a rope wrapping around their ankle, and a man in a base in the basement of the property actually had his sunglasses knocked off by an unseen force. I could see there being some violence and angry people. I mean, remember a lot of the prisoners who died were not the greatest people, and they were kept in horrible conditions, so they might be a little angry about their predicament. There are also terrible odors that actually are so bad that people have actually become ill in the prison. Remember the sawdust story from the prison, so maybe that's it. I don't know. Others report the feeling of being watched, 
and there will be massive temperature changes. Um, for example, it might be pretty warm in the prison in the summer, but even in the summer, visitors will report their breath coming out in a cloud of fog because it's so cold. Doors will be found open after being closed and locked, things like that. There are a number of paranormal investigations that have happened here. Um, some of the ones I've seen, they catch banging sounds on camera. You will see doors that are open. Um, one person stated they suffered scratches on camera. I watched the video, but I couldn't see them in the video, so I don't know what happened there. I didn't see anything watching the video that I'm like, oh, you guys have to watch that. It shows a lot of cool stuff. Really didn't see anything. Um, not saying there wasn't anything, because I know it's a lot of times hard to capture that. But in the end, a lot of people died here, and most of them died in horrible ways. Public executions, torture, disease. It wasn't a great place. And while I don't think the Fishers themselves haunt here, I don't know why they would want to hang out here. You'd think they'd haunt where they died or where they were living before that. Um, but again, many people died over the years, inmates, slaves, staff members, and it just may be them haunting the place. Their spirit can't leave, so on and so forth. But what I would love to hear is your thoughts on whether you think the old jail is haunted or not. I'd also love to hear any personal experiences you have, see any pictures you might have taken, any other facts you have, um, even including just on Lavinia and John themselves. I'd also love to hear your feedback on this episode and suggestions you may have for future episodes. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday, wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready to roll. Also follow the podcast social media accounts for more information on each episode, including this one, which will have pictures, links, and much, much more. So you can follow me on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can always email me at paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.